0: and germs welcome back to the grinning idiot podcast i'm your host jay floyd and i'm glad you found us again you know our show here is going to often deal with the various personalities that make up the entertainment industry Uh, so far we're focusing a lot on people in the film industry because that's the world i've moved in the most and tonight's guest is a good example of that you know. I'm reminded uh, in introducing tonight's conversation with Marie Canton um, of a quote that was attributed to either Betty Davis or Tallulah Bankhead. There is some discrepancy here uh, in stories, but one of them was on Johnny Carson. And Johnny Carson asked, what advice would you give to young actresses trying to make it in Hollywood? And the actress's response was, take fountain, it's faster. And if you live in Los Angeles, you understand that intimately. Um, The road to making it in Hollywood is a very unpredictable one. One of the biggest mistakes a person can make, in my opinion, is thinking they know how things are going to go once they get here and start trying. I myself have had lots of twists and turns. Uh, and could not have predicted a quarter of the events that have now made up this thing I call my life. In my conversation with Marie, I realized that even people who seem to have a little more wiggle room in what their ultimate goals are, um, can't fully explain how it is they ended up with the phenomenal resume that Marie ended up with. Um, The conversation makes that clear, but the woman who has been a producer on such movies as Torch Song Trilogy and The Water Dance and uh, Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, Dante's Peak, A Night at the Rocks, Perry, Save the Last Dance, Big Fat Liar, Collateral, this woman may surprise you. I've known her for more than two decades, and this conversation surprised even me and sort of inspired me in a lot of ways. I'm really, really interested in not listening to myself anymore and turning this over to my conversation with the lovely marie canton take it away marie Jay Floyd, and this is the Grinning Idiot Podcast. We're talking with Marie Canton. Hi, Marie. Hi, Jay. We it's weird to introduce myself since we've known each other for how long?
1: I don't even know. It's anymore. over
0: 20 years. Absolutely. Because you knew me when 19. I went into rehab. When I went into rehab, <laughs> you sent me from Fred Siegel a monkey That's so right. that I could a stuffed monkey so that I could have it removed from my back. That's right. You did that.
1: That's right. <laughs> One of those sock monkeys, those old fashioned ones. From
0: Fred Siegel. It was fancy monkey.
1: I know, but you know it's funny. I don't I don't think I really understood exactly what I was doing. It just felt like the right thing to do. And it then was. later when you said it, I went, oh my god, I didn't even realize it. <laughs> it's really freaking funny. Trouble.
0: And um, was there, wait a minute, was there drugs in it? No. Okay, okay, just checking. Because I never really shook it down. Or, um, no, um still then, have it, right? And then, here's what else you did. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go back, because our story goes. It starts before then, but then I got out of rehab and I came back and I was a train wreck and I was doing odd jobs. And um, I just realized a couple of those things never stopped for the next 30 years, but whatever. (laughs) Um, And you called and you said, what are you doing? And the answer was living on a friend's floor, um, probably mourning the death of Princess Diana, because that had just happened. And you said, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. And you said, come do clearances on this movie called The Night at the Roxbury, because you were (laughs) producing it. And I said, "Um, I don't know what they are. And you said, your dad was a liar. Get over it. You'll you'll get it. And I went, oh, shit. So I think it was like that afternoon. That's right. I was being introduced to the entire crew as their clearance person. And that's when I learned that if you carry a clipboard, people just believe you.
1: That's right. (laughs) And and that also shows you the level of desperation I was at. It's like, I need someone to do this. I know. I know. I'll get Jay. But you were also, the other thing I remember at that period in your life, you were driving this car Uh that was the size of a boat. 63
0: Chrysler Imperial.
1: I can and, and and one of the things I I was concerned about it was like we had this narrow parking lot and I went, how is he ever going to get that car in and out of the Getting
0: it branches? in wasn't the problem. Getting it out was iffy <laughs> because it might have just died there. Um, it was the only car I've ever had where I could lay down on the back seat and neither my feet nor my head touched.
1: That's right.
0: It was a living room on wheels. It was a Williams. sleeping car. It was ridiculous. And it I was. was like, and since I was like one paycheck away from having to sleep in my car, it was pretty, uh, it was a wise move. And
1: you know, a, a two gallons, uh, two miles a gallon too or something like I
0: that. I was also doing, I remember, I was also doing. Script revisions, not not That's the creative right. work, but the the technical work. No, of I, executing I had to
1: bundle the work because we didn't have that big of a budget, and I was like, there and, were things that I knew needed to be done, and there was no one to do them. And I Amy
0: hand wrote them on right. tablets. Yeah. Amy Heckerling. and and I would I remember having to go up to her house and wait for them, and and God, the things that you know what? <laughs> and here's the here's the messed up thing about Hollywood. I thought all of that was a privilege.
1: <laughs> well, I mean. In a way yeah, you look is. back on it and think you know well i did all these things and people were paying me to do them and it's kind of like sometimes it didn't feel like work i mean yeah i i i, I some of that stuff was just like this is just what i do all day it doesn't feel like work so if somebody wanted to i i would have these people want to come and watch, observe me working i'm like going well first of all that's completely lame i'm working <laughs> so i'm working so i don't need you in my way you know mm-hmm. i'm actually working and then i would think well they're going to look at what I'm doing and they're going to go, well, that's not work. I was like, oh. Well, it is. <laughs> no, it is.
0: But there was also, the, well, the group of people that you pulled in to that production mm-hmm. office, they were sort of remarkable. Do you remember yeah, how fun, were, like right? like Matt and I, mean, there were just some, Candace, there were some amazing that's people. Right. And I remember one day, one day, it was for, there was a table read later that day or something. And I was just, I was going for food and the person in my way was Lauren Michaels and I, my, my head was going. That's Crudite, and that's Lauren Michaels. <laughs> and I was going. I don't. Am I in my life? It was very exciting and thrilling. Yeah. Um, and the movie ended up being something that people still love today, which is very nice. Oh my
1: god! When I was, when I was, uh... whenever
0: I say I started doing clearances on A Night at the yeah. Roxbury, people go, "Oh my god! I love that movie all the time."
1: I know. When I was, uh, uh, when I was at AFI. That was There were there were a couple of movies I had worked on that the students would like, you know, go, oh my God, that's like my favorite movie. And they were always surprising. They all knew A Night at the Roxbury, all of them. The other one that, that people, was like a cult movie in, in people's college dorms was the, uh, uh, Things to Do in Denver when You're Dead. Okay,
0: that was another movie that, that, that you, were you a producer on that film?
1: I was an executive producer. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, I do the same role in every movie. They just put different adjectives. yeah. <laughs> You know, the paycheck okay. goes up and down, and okay, it's so kind of like all over the place. But essentially, I, I'm I'm me, and I come. With, I'm software, and I come in and go. What do you need? <laughs> okay, we'll do that. I
0: remember um, you were you were in the production office for that movie that was on Lancashire above some weird storefront. Yeah, that's right. And um, you had not seen me in quite a while. That's right. And I came to have a script meeting with you on a that's project right. we were working on together. And you yelled across the room, "You're skinny." And what I didn't say was that's meth.
1: <laughs> oh my god, I was I was very alarmed. I was like, "What happened? Yeah, Jay, no, he no. like withered away. You know, you yeah. look good, but I was it was a little <laughs> con- con- disconcerting. No,
0: I'm never supposed to be skinny. If I'm really skinny, something's wrong. It's just that's the that's just the way it is. But you didn't know that yet. Um, that's just one of the things I remember. I think about. I
1: also remember giving you a check for Christmas that year because I thought I'm not going to buy you a present because you don't need a present. You need money. And I'm like going, yeah. Well, little did I know where the money was going. You know. Oh,
0: I'm sure I didn't spend it on that. I probably joined a gym. <laughs> Okay, that's probably anyway, not what happened. We'll and it. also, the other thing I remember about things to do in Denver in your, when you're dead is um, when you explained to me that if you really want to do a convincing blood splat when someone blows their brains out, it's a bran muffin and a traditional stage
1: blood. That's right. Muff- muffins.
0: Uh-huh. I had no idea. That's right. I've never looked at muffins the same. I actually stopped eating them. <laughs> I don't know if it was because of that or not. So let me ask you this. Yeah. When did you fall in love with movies?
1: You know, that's, a, that's funny because I didn't really grow up, you know.
0: You grew up in Canada?
1: No. In I, Monterey, was born, but... I was born in Canada and then we moved to East Africa when I was little. Oh, that's so, right. I forgot you know, about, We yeah. lived in Ethiopia until I was about seven. And, you know, TV. There was no TV. Yeah. Movies, I don't remember ever going to the movies until much later. Um, so it wasn't, you know, but I read a lot of books. It was like, that was my whole, my whole world was about reading Mm-hmm. really and it wasn't until we moved to the u.s and then when we moved to, to palo alto my dad went to stanford um to get a, an advanced degree and uh we didn't have a tv then either so i didn't watch tv and i still don't remember going to the movies but i have very distinct memories of going to the movies with either my mother or my father that were sort of they were very important events it wasn't just like, oh, let's go to the movies because something's playing. I mean, it was treated
0: as an art form.
1: Well, maybe, but I don't. But my parents. When you
0: say important events, that's what well, I was They were leaning. just
1: important events in terms of, of our family's. You okay. Know, what, what our family did. But, you know, my parents grew up working class, Montreal. You know, they're the only, they're the first people in their families to go to college. Um, they were. You know the, their interest in art and music and culture really came out of their own, uh, their own DNA. You know, and their tr- their own travels and, and their own choices. Um, but I don't, but I don't think movies sort of were lodged in the same. Movies was sort of a part. It wasn't part of like the history of literature or art or sculpture or, or, you know, or anything like that the sort of they grew to understand as they became more educated and, and more traveled. Mm. But my dad, I think, loved movies more than my mom did. And so, see, he and I over the years, I was thinking about this earlier today because I knew we were going to talk and, and I was thinking, yeah, these things will come up. Um, mm. When I, you know, was... You know, when I was working on movies in L.A. and I would go visit my parents, I always made a point of going, taking my dad to see uh, a film that had just come out or something that that was playing. Because I knew that he wouldn't go by himself and my mother was not as interested in going because her problem is she gets so carried away by what she sees that... You know, she it it's, it leaves such an impression on her. She like will like they went to see the Godfather, right? The wrong mm. movie for somebody like this to see. I don't think she slept for like a week after I have a sister seeing like the that. film. I have a sister so who can't very,
0: see dark films. No, she can't because they, they actually affect her psyche. She
1: can do dark <clears throat> in terms of thematic dark, but she can't do dark in terms of visual dark, violence, gore, you know, stuff like that. So, in in, in answer to your question, I don't remember the exact moment or time when my interest in movies or my my desire to make them really occur it wasn't like an event it was just sort of an accumulation of being interested in a world that i really didn't have anything to do with that i didn't really know about it was a little bit mysterious but it seemed to come out of the same uh place as my interest in you know reading novels and stories and and storytelling it sort of came from that that same it hatched from that same kind of uh uh I don't know, ether or something. Here's
0: why that's a little difficult for me to incorporate. Because when you and I met, what movie were you working on? You were in a little office I on was, Midwelshire. Oh that's God. the first time I met you. And you read this it was really... Probably, it was The
1: Water Dance. Okay, was it The Water Dance? I think
0: it was The Water okay, Dance. Okay, so it was... A friend had shared a script I wrote with That's you right. that was completely insane called The Starglow Diner. I
1: still have it. That
0: was both expensive and weird, it's which fun. is just the worst combination. You know, ever. I was
1: cleaning out my garage recently. I found the original script that you gave me. <laughs> I have it. I couldn't part it's of it. Crazy. it is crazy. Um, it's crazy. And I went
0: though. to meet you, and what was immediately obvious was how much you love movies and that you love storytelling and you love being a piece of the machine that yeah. makes them. Yeah. And so it's very hard for me to believe that it was a casual interest or that, that it wasn't something that grabbed you in a way that you noticed.
1: Well, it wasn't. I mean, it, 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 it was sort of like a, I don't know, it's just going to sound really weird. It's like a, it was like a low-grade headache. You know, it's like, it's all, you know what I mean? it's like always there. But Is it's, that
0: why so many people are alcoholics in our industry? Because it's a with low-grade it. headache? You learn cheating? to
1: live with it. And I, I, I don't know. People have asked me this question before, and you'd think after this much time I would have at least thought about it enough to be able to answer it in a coherent way. So
0: It's going to be your last word.
1: The fact that I can't answer in a coherent way. It was way. Julie
0: Andrews.
1: <laughs> no, but like I remember specific movies that my parents and I went to see, like my, my dad was a professor of engineering at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey and they had a movie theater there and every Friday night they would screen movies and up until the time they decided that civilians couldn't do it because it was only for the military we stopped going so we would go um, and we saw Exodus we saw um, The Sound of Music we saw I remember he and I went to see uh, this James Gardner Racing Film what was it? that okay. I have seen, re, 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 you know re, went back and looked at again, and I went, oh, it's not a very good film, but it made an impression on me, because it was about car racing. Okay,
0: it was probably exciting.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um. We also went, I remember when the, there was a Russian eight-hour version of War and Peace that was made many, many years ago. They used the Russian army and everything. It was re-released recently. Michael went to see it with somebody. Um, an eight-hour film. Yeah. It's shown in two four-hour sections, and it was playing at the Cinema 70 in Monterey, where, by the way, I had my dad and I had seen Star Wars, and uh-huh. you know, we we had. I saw gone Star Wars with my dad
0: movies. in Florida on vacation. Yeah.
1: so but. we my parents decided my parent they had read about it. I think it was my dad probably more interested in that. We were going to go see this film. i was like going, wow! So we went. I mean, the three of us went and sat through an eight-hour movie. Spread over two nights with these gigantic war scenes that went on for like 90 minutes it seemed like you know? <laughs> and my the fact that my mother sat through it and you know was not just violently opposed to returning to get the second part was <laughs> sort, sort of telling but you know so the, because it was't it was an infrequent uh experience somehow it had more weight
0: I was going to say, do you remember looking at these These entertainments as something important.
1: They were important in terms of doing something for us that was a little bit out of the ordinary. But also, we were my parents were very selective about what it was that they wanted to see and what it was that I was allowed to see. Because when I was in high school, you know, I remember Bonnie and Clyde came out. Yeah, I just rewatched that. And they and they said to me, they said, "You cannot see it." And you know, I was like, what, sixteen at the time? And they just said, you can't go see this film. It's like it glorifies violence and we don't think it's it's the right thing for you to go watch. You know, th- then the graduate had come out too, and they decided they were gonna see it before they would have some declamation about what what I could and couldn't see. What was the verdict? And they didn't want me to see it either. But I, I, I could see that. But I saw it anyway.
0: <laughs> oh no, I wasn't allowed to see Jaws, so I snuck out and saw yeah. it. And then we went to a Caribbean vacation <laughs> that year. And I panicked on a surfboard and I had to be rescued.
1: You had, did you have to admit that you'd seen the film? You yes, were to see? Well, I had to admit it
0: because my sister said, oh, she was messing with me. And she yeah. knew how scared I was yeah. and that I had a secret. And she said, oh, that's a fin. Let's go see if it's a shark. And I freaked out. And this um, nude sunbathing Italian woman came <laughs> swimming out to save me and my dad was putting on a colors. show for her. And um uh, whatever, that would be probably 76. Is that the year Jaws came out? I don't know. You still know. haven't seen it. And don't think i haven't made no, a I note. Haven't seen it. I can't believe you haven't seen Jaws, because even though it destroyed filmmaking as we know it, <laughs> it is a really good I movie. Know,
1: Jay, don't even let's not go to the list of movies I haven't seen. I've also seen weird stuff that nobody else has seen. So
0: um, so I snuck out and saw that, and it, my mom was right. It was completely devastating to me. I had a hard time swimming in our pool at night. See,
1: exactly. She was right. Yeah.
0: She was always right.
1: So parents aren't completely dumb, you know?
0: No, no. Um, so when did you, what so, was?
1: So anyway, I, I you know, my, my interest, I had an interest in entertainment because eventually, you know, we did end up having a television. Um, but I was never allowed to. Well, I mean, eventually, it, the, and the main reason for it was to watch the Vietnam War on TV. I mean, honestly, that's what we did it. The at Vietnam dinner. War, you said? Yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, at dinner time, that was what was on TV when we were eating dinner. It was a very weird time. There were also some TV shows that I was, you know, that that we that we sort of watched. My mother was never really interested. My dad was curious about it because I think he was. He he was my father was curious about popular culture, um, in a way that my my mother isn't, simply because her cultural interests are grounded in this like deep connection to Renaissance music, and she she can't she doesn't know where it comes from, and I understand that kind of connection to an art form or to a, a time period.
0: I think you have that with film.
1: Probably. It's the same kind of thing, or with swimming. You know, it's like why? Why do I have to? When about I hear swimming?
0: you talking about your experience of watching someone else's film, I'm not talking about watching one of the ones that you've helped create, right. because that's a different experience and right. it's very hard to be objective about it. But when I hear you talking about a movie you love, yeah, no, 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 this is in your blood. And when I hear you talking about a movie that didn't work for you, you're just as passionate about it.
1: Yeah,
0: it's something deeply reflective of something in you, and I'm wondering. If when you became conscious of that, because you what what was your first job in the industry? What did you what did you do when you first got here? Oh my God! Well,
1: we we, we want What you want to know how I first got my got my? I mean, this is two different questions. When I
0: met you, you were already yeah. working in pretty elevated positions.
1: Yeah. Um I didn't start out in those elevated positions twice. A week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean it's at a, this is so this this may help illustrate some of, you know, a little tell tell you a little bit about, you know, how I ended up here because when I gra- I graduated from college very young. I think I just turned 20 like the month before I graduated. And I had a degree in sociology from UC Santa Cruz, which was like the anti-intellectual place of all time at okay. the time that I was there. You know, it was really weird. People were Was doing, it a party school? No, no, it wasn't a party school. It was like the the, the rumor was it was the school where all the U C Berkeley applicants who might turn into radical people okay. would riot. They would send them to U C Santa Cruz because once you got to Santa Cruz, you would be so zoned out, you would never have the energy to do anything. You know, okay, the
0: very happy. But go on. Anyway, how so, you end up there? Anyway, go on.
1: So I went to U C Santa Cruz because it was also the antithesis of this girls' prep school that I had gone to, where I actually learned what I should have what most people would learn in like college or graduate school. Okay. I mean, I already done that. So I went to like mm-hmm. the antithesis of that place. And so when I graduated from UC Santa Cruz, I had no idea what I was going to do. I was just 20. It's like, what do you do? You know, my dad was taking a sabbatical in Europe and he said, "Look, if you want to come, you know, come." So I I said, "Okay." So it's like I took another it's like in my, it was like a gap year really. Now the kids do it on purpose. Yeah. I just sort of did it by default. So I spent 6 months in in Wales in Swansea with them and then I went to Italy and I took care of some Italian kids that was a, that's a movie I lived a Lena Wertmüller film. Oh. I mean swept away I I was in the middle of that film. Okay. You know in I real life. I haven't seen it. Um see now you haven't seen swept away no, and I haven't th- seen th- there's
0: some really Jackson. weird okay, movies so. I haven't seen.
1: But. So um when at the end of this year in Europe it was like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, it's like, I don't have college whatever. So I decided to apply to law school because what does a smart person do? Go to law school. It's like, I had no interest in going to law school. I applied to like Harvard, Princeton, and Yale or something. Cause it's like, I, it was a death wish. You know what I mean? There is no, I had no prayer of getting into those schools. A, cause I did so badly on the LSAT Jet lagged in an overheated building in Montreal, flying between Europe back to California over the Christmas holidays. That's where I had to take it. So it was like, it was a horrible experience and I did really badly. And then I wrote these essays about the meaning of art. I mean, this is clearly somebody that has an idea about what they're interested in and is clearly going about the wrong thing. Like, See,
0: and that's interesting because this answer doesn't trip off your tongue. And yet it was pronounced in your decisions that you were making at that what, time in your life. It was already vividly on the surface. Well, I
1: mean, look, when you called and said you were doing this, this you know, you were, you were interested in talking about the concept of resilience. You know, the, my, my two immediate thoughts were, well, you and my mother are probably the two most resilient people I know. <laughs>
0: we are both cockroaches. Okay. No, you just no, cannot be killed no but you just have
1: i mean you've just like you both of you have gone through some really uh, difficult periods and you just come back and you and you yeah but
0: your mother stayed friendly well, <laughs> she's I'm the nicest that. lady she's well, she's a very she very, very moments, nice person right? we all have well, our moms. I've right? only seen her socially right. so
1: but. but um i i realize that i don't I've never had a plan for anything. It's against. It goes oh my against God. That, the. That grain. is so
0: not how I experience you at all.
1: I don't have a plan. I just go. Oh, that's interesting. I think I'll do that for a while. And then, that, then it. You know that, why? You know why you don't seem that way? Away. No, no, no.
0: You know why? Because you get so invested in things you do. That's right. You become so invested. You become the person with the binder under their arm. Yeah. You would never guess that person got there by accident ever. That's well, why I don't, I don't perceive well, you that I way. Well, I
1: think. I don't think it's getting there completely by accident. Not by
0: accident, but without intention, is what I mean.
1: That's different. Yeah. I'm not planning and intention to me are not the same. No, they are not.
0: They're not. No, I misspoke.
1: So my intention, you know, when I first moved well when I we got back from this year in Europe, is like, what am I gonna do? Right. So I had I had always had this fantasy about learning how to ski really well. It was I was a very bad skier, but I sort of was I had this romanticized version of vision of what that was about, right? And I had friends who who lived in Park City, and I went, "I'm just going to move to Park City and live with them, and I'll learn how to ski. That's what I'm going to do, or I'm going to move to LA and get in the movie business." Okay, this is from someone who doesn't plan, right? Who basically had just not gotten into the top three, arguably law schools in the country for a bad LSAT and stupid essays that made no sense, you know. And I'm not a stupid person. so not at all. So, so I, I was... But I was really in a quandary about what to do. You know, I was 21 by then. Uh, I had, you know, not worked really. I'd had these odd jobs. I was doing this really weird... So was
0: that the flip the coin for you was...
1: Well, no. Park was,
0: City or Hollywood? That's
1: right. Those were my choices that I gave myself. And I remember you know, ta- having deciding that I needed to get some guidance from somebody about what to do, because they were such radically different things. And I think the other thing is, you know, growing up, I was a swimmer and an athlete, but I was also a really you know, smart kid who did really well in school, who was involved in all student government and all this stuff and it was it to me at the time felt a little bit like a schizophrenic experience because I was a jock with the jock people mm-hmm. and I was someone else with the rest of the people I had the same but thing between were, my
0: jock friends in high school and my theater friends
1: yeah so it's the same thing so you yeah. understand that so I had this look, sort of bifurcated you know life growing up and I didn't want to have to choose one or the other it was like well I want to do both well, you, you know it, 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 it eventually occurred to me watching you know, how other people progress through their career choices and whatnot, that that was not f- going to ever happen. I have to make a choice, sort of. I would have to, like, pick a lane and go into that lane for a while at least to get good at something because I'm, like, you know, the dilettante of all time, really.
0: That's kind of a, a theme that I want to investigate a little bit here. Um, the the moment where you're putting effort into something and you have to acknowledge that it may not happen. Yeah. That moment, when you come to work in Los Angeles and you have big goals, that moment happens over and over and over and over and over. I personally don't think I ever let go of any one of them. Like the script I met you over, I actually pulled out last year or something and went, if I change this a little... (laughs)
1: <laughs> you mean
0: the Gold Diner? Yes, the Glow Diner. I was well, like, there's two, an interesting story in there. You don't change
1: here. it a little. You make it into two scripts. Then you got two movies. Uh, I mean, it's two different that's movies. That's what you told
0: me. You were the, you're the one who told you ta- this like, ta- 20 years ago. Ta- you're the one who taught me about not parking an aircraft carrier in the middle of your story. That's right. That's it's like I borrowed
1: that phrase from Michael. So okay, you know, well. I don't take credit for um,
0: but, but I don't think I've ever given up everything. I have had to yeah. look and go... That's not going to happen the way I thought it was. It's not going to look like I intended it to. Uh, my very specific goals looked a very specific way, but I think the nature of being in this particular business, or probably any show business, it's going to have to be more malleable, isn't it? You're going to have to go. But, I'm going to let yeah, it go where see, it takes I don't,
1: me. I don't think this is just uh, show business. I mean, well, I, well
0: that's okay. I, think, you know, I immediately checked it against some other businesses that are, seem more linear to me.
1: Well, that's because I think this is, you know, this is an odd business because it attracts creative people and creative people don't sort of like operate exactly the same way as say somebody who decides that they want to be a criminal attorney. If of you course, want to be yeah. a criminal attorney, you have mm-hmm. to follow a certain path or you'll never be able to do it. When you want to be a movie producer.
0: I'm sorry. You, I can't every time you said criminal attorney, I'm picturing... All the attorneys who are criminals okay. in the news right now. I don't mean it
1: That is not my intention. Okay, okay. So, you know, so so that's just, that makes it, that's unique to what we do in yes. a way. Because, and then, and then if you find yourself as somebody in that business or pursuing that kind of, you know, work who is not only one thing, like driven to be, you know, There are people who are, they're writers through and through, and that's all they're going to ever do, because that's what drives them. Or, uh, you know, or me, who's like, yeah, I like to write. It's like, okay. There's a lot of things I like to do, and and I realized that I could satisfy all these different sort of impulses, um, by doing the work that I had sort of fallen into in a way not completely by accident but by a series of decisions I had made where I learned enough about what I thought I was doing to realize that I had to pivot a little bit in order to to be able to continue doing what I wanted to do like mm. when I
0: what do you mean pivot
1: well for instance I when I I moved to LA right and I worked as a secretary for a publishing company and then I went I was so depressed I worked for lawyers it was just a transition period everyone
0: who works for lawyers says exactly what you what just said but
1: it was a public interest law firm my dad so was a
0: lawyer Go public on. interest yeah.
1: law firm side of it was very interesting I okay. have to say because mm-hmm. the cases that they were doing I mean pub- public interest law was not something that was that common at the time so I learned a lot it was it was really interesting But I just, it was like I was living in L.A., like, oh, what am I doing here? So I left, and I went back east for a while, and I ran this art and music camp for kids. And it was during that time, that was a gestation period for me, because I was around people my own age, and I was hiring them to come to this art and music camp for the summer and be like artists in residence to teach kids, you know, painting, art, dance, music, all this kind of stuff. And I looked around and I went, the, all these people are doing exactly what they want to do and they're managing to make a living at it. It's like there's no reason why I can't do that either. Did and you fall I, in
0: love with any particular aspect of that?
1: No, because I had moved to L.A. to make movies and I still love movies and that's what I wanted to do. But I hadn't been able in the year and a half I was here to figure out how to uh, how to do that. So the year and a half that I spent in L.A. when I first moved here, I really spent just learning the town and sort of geography and going to the movies all the time. And, you know, I, I had what it
0: meant to be in this culture. That's
1: right. And yeah. what, and, I and let a, that teach you. And I had a few friends. <laughs> I had a high school friend who I, uh, who you met Mary Edith. I she love was Mary one Edith. of the few people that I knew in LA, you know, and she was a founding member of the, of the Groundlings. She was an improv person an actor. So I learned a lot just from, from sort of hanging out with her and the people she knew and, sort of i mean i didn't know what sag was i didn't i had no clue you know i really it's like i came to town a total neophyte and knew nothing about anything and knew no one and had no connections except my friend mary edith and then a high school friend a college friend whose floor i slept on the first three months i was here who was wanting to be a writer um and her family was friends with robert town and you know so it was like so that was that's who that's I showed up in L.A. in my van with everything I mm-hmm. owned in it, you know, and I knew two people: the woman whose floor I slept on, and my high school friend who was married at the time, and you know, working at the Westwood Playhouse, and you know, she introduced me to people, and they would take me to SAG screenings, and they would play practical jokes. So, on what me.
0: was your first entertainment industry job?
1: It wasn't until I left L.A., went to this art and music camp. camp. Yeah, decided while I was there that. If I wanted to get into the film business, the only thing that seemed, it seemed to me that I would need to go to film school. I had an idea that since I had no connections, I had never made movies before, who was I to think that I could ever do this? And
0: you were thinking, what's missing here? Yeah.
1: So I thought, well, I'll go to graduate school. I'll go to, and unlike my law school debacle, I was much more strategic about it. First of all, I said I'm going to apply to places I think I can get into.
0: You didn't send them an essay about the law, did you?
1: No. (laughs) Okay, just (laughs) checking. Although, ironically, it's like I wish I had gone to law school because they would have been very useful to me in my career. Um, uh, So, we had a family friend when we first moved to the U.S. and moved to Palo Alto. Our next-door neighbor in married student housing at Stanford was a couple who had two kids. And she was my first music teacher, and she taught my mother how to play the recorder, which my mother played for 30 years. And her husband was a documentary filmmaker, and he became an academic and over the years had all these positions. And he was, uh, he was a dean at Temple University in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia was very close to where I was working in New Jersey. So being also a practical person, I said, okay. Philadelphia is close by. I'm already living here. Temple University, I can get in because I can get Ernie to write me a letter of recommendation. That'll help me. But he had also gone to UCLA film school. And so I asked him to write me a letter to UCLA because I said, UCLA, it's a UC system. I can afford it. I'll move back to California. And to me, it was like, you want to make movies, you're going to go to LA or New York. Get serious. This is really like your two choices. I'll come back to my... Ski or L.A. thing in a minute, because that's also interesting in a way, for different reasons. So I I just went, I'm going to apply to two film schools. I'll probably get into both, and then I'll decide what to do. And I got into both, and I got a full scholarship to Temple. And I went, I don't want to make documentaries. That's what they do there. Well, that's not my thing. It's not my lane. I'm going to L.A., done. We're moving back to L.A. And I packed my van and drove back and went to L.A. And I was in film school for nine months. And then the summer came, and I got a summer job. And, and then as a fluke, and this is a fluke, there had been an ad in the placement center at UCLA on a little note card. This is how we found jobs back in the day before there was the Internet. You looked at little note cards on a pin board or something. Yeah. And I looked at it, and it said, we're looking for somebody who can ro- uh, drive a motorhome, type, and sew. As at the you- same time. Yes. And I went, well, actually, I drive a Volkswagen Vance. I can probably drive a motorhome. I definitely know how to type because I had suffered through being a secretary for a year and a half. And I knew how to sew because I used to sew my own clothes when I was in high school. So I responded and said, I'm your gal. That's, That's it. So, end of story, right? I don't hear from these people for weeks. And I get a job teaching Italian and French kids how to speak English. And I'm running around town being a tour guide. And I get a phone call one day because... I cleared the message on my answering machine because, again, you know, we're back in the dark ages. We're answering machines. And I'm listening to this message, and this woman says, uh, blah, 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 blah. And, I'm, and I, I listened to her, and I went, who the hell is this calling me? How did she get my number? And so I called back, and I said, look, I, I, I don't know why you called, but uh, you, I don't know what this is about. I have no idea. I hung up the phone. It said, payphone in the Palisades. That's how I cleared the message. <laughs> called her back to be polite hung up the phone and quickly realized, oh my God, it's that job from the placement center. It's a PA job. So I called her back right away and I said, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. I said, you're calling about this? She said, yes. So I went, met them the next day and they hired me. That was my first job as a PA. a PA. And yeah. I did drive Mine a Mine was motor craft home. service. Well, yep. interestingly enough, I did drive a motorhome. They made me Karen Black stand-in, and I stayed friends with her until she died. It was like an amazing kind of yep. serendipitous meeting. <clears throat> uh, I did so eventually because after they fired the costume designer, they decided that I should do some duty in the art department and costume design. And the first day on the set, the production manager had me deal with craft service. And at the end of the first day, I went up to him and I said, listen, I'll do anything, I don't do food. Don't put me the back. I'm not. I said I'll just find someone else. I'm not interested. So if you want me to do something else, <laughs> it's okay. But that's not for me ever. I never want to do that. So maybe as punishment, I spent the next like week, you know, behind a closed door, in a lockup, doing don't go in that room. We're just wrong. so you know, yeah.
0: Here's what you missed. Um, when we were doing, I did my first movie job was in New York on the Robert Wise film Rooftops, and um, I was doing craft service with my college roommate. Um, she had a crush on the producer's assistant, and I had a crush on the screenwriter, whose name was Terence. But otherwise, I don't remember anything about him except he had good hair. By halfway through the production, the only things on the craft service table <laughs> were things that either of these two people had casually mentioned they liked. <laughs> so, if you watched the service, this uh, the craft service table change to a specific thing. There's probably a subplot going on. Just so you know,
1: what's that? Speaking of which, I, I I'm blanking out on titles of stuff. It was the same when I went to to the to Sundance producers lab with "Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead." It was also the same year that they screened as was a black and white film, "Living in Oblivion." Is that the name of it? That
0: is. There's a black and white film called "Living in Oblivion." Okay, Blivion.
1: so the very first scene is a craft service scene. It's absolutely okay. hilarious if you have you go back and watch it because it's like, i did it i did the job twice table, and, and i like was done yep. crap and it's like you yep. know it's like really bad and the food is like got mold on it whatever it's like i'm watching it going this is exactly the experience of anyone starting out when you get stuck oh, at yeah, that job
0: no. i just remember howard Koch because we did extravagant things like we went we were shooting in new york city and i remember it's the middle of the summer i had a planter's wart it was awful <laughs> we went to a grocery store and i went hey movie people are fancy and fancy people like oysters. Let's offer oysters. And Trish was like, my partner was like, sure. And so we're sitting, but we didn't know how to open them. So we're sitting on this curb in the nastiest part of the Lower East Side and I'm trying to open oysters and it's not going well. And I just remember Howard Koch Jr. walking by and going, are you on budget? (laughs) (laughs) No. And he's going, yes. And he went, he just shook his head and walked away. <laughs> anyway, it was it was a good story. Um, I don't think I'm interested in doing it again. But, I mean, um, it's
1: like it's a really important job in terms of the morale of the crew. It's oh yeah, no, more...
0: halfway, uh, three quarters of the way through every day, right. uh, we, we would do what was called the shit tray, yeah. and we would just go through with sugar. I mean, pixie sticks, candy bars, da, 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 <laughs> and just be like, here, uh, before you have your next emotion, try this. You know.
1: When I, you know, it's when, when when I did that film in Fiji with Gail and her husband. The, oh, uh, I
0: remember that. What was that called?
1: Tropical Journeys. Yes,
0: Tropical Journeys. I remember. Ended up
1: being released as uh, something else. I saw it. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah. And the, and one of the actors in that film actually just uh, wrote, directed, and produced an independent film called Lolo that has got the most incredible reviews. I haven't seen it yet. Wow. Um, I'm very impressed with him. He's, he's another. He's here's a kid. He showed up in L.A. knew nobody. Came from his working class family. Had no connection to Hollywood at all. And he's going to have a career as a director. Well,
0: I want to pull it back to this, Marie, because you had no connection to Hollywood. You didn't have a family with a foundation in Hollywood no. or the arts. Um, you did have a family with a foundation in uh, practicality and getting things made. Your father and in, in, in his career, but you didn't have. Uh, an artistic family that you came from you ended up here and you ended up working on some really wonderful projects sort of one after the other yeah and um is that satisfying to something in you that you knew you were servicing or that you had to chase or was it literally just um a natural progression like a uh, was it just a job to you um
1: no it was never just a job to me it was more it was more about well, I said earlier that, you know, I, I don't ever have a plan. I just do what interests me and I do it. But when I, you know, you latched. I mean, I do it and then I'm committed to it a thousand percent. because
0: is, yes. Because... That's a defining quality of But course.
1: I'll tell you something. The only reason mm. I can do that is because I do what genuinely interests me. So when I started working on movies, I knew at the beginning I would have to just get some experience and I would have to do stuff. But there were things that I was just not willing to work on. And I decided, you know what this is not a luxury for me. This is a necessity. I need to pick and choose who I work with, what I work on, what I'm gonna, I had to have a reason to do what I was doing. And there were certain things that I wanted no part of. I mean, it's like, you know, people starting out, they work on on porno and horror films. It's like, I'm not interested in supporting those, supporting that. It's like. In a horror films, I don't watch them. I want nothing to do with them. Someone else can make them. That's great for people who like that genre. It's not me. So why am I going to go spend my time, which, even if I get paid a lot, my time is gone once I've expended it. it I don't get it back.
0: Did I tell you so, what my Israeli film professor at NYU said to me before sending me out into the world? No. I don't, to this day, I don't know why he said this. So... I had done very well and in, in his class, and his name was Emil Nebel, and he got things wrong like he would always say, what it boils up to, and things like you know, that. I loved that English was his third language. Well, at the end of the class, where I had, I had done really well, and he was very fond of my work, he pulls you into his office with the words of wisdom, I guess, that he's going to send you off with, and here's what I got. Gee, don't do porn. <laughs> to this day... I don't know why he said that.
1: Uh, well, maybe he thought he, you, you know, would do anything. Look, one of my, you know, I, 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 speak to young filmmakers and to people when I was at AFI the time I was there, and I mean, this is, I have, it's not like I have a stump speech, but I have some sort of <laughs> stock sort of philosophies or, or things that I share with people, and one of them is that, especially a young person, a young person's primary objective, in my opinion rather than figure out, spend a lot of time figuring out, you know, how they can be strategic about who they know. I mean, they spend so much time trying to figure out the 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 strategies for success in business and all this other stuff. It's like, well actually you also need to spend at least as much or more time thinking about a couple things, which are, one, who are you and how do you like to be treated in the world? Mm. And think about that. Because at inevitable moments in your career in your life you're going to have to make choices and some of the choices are going to be difficult and they're going to be hard to make for you and they're and and you may need to have some guiding principle for how you make them and if you understand how you're wired as a person and how you like to operate in the world and how you like people to Treat how how you like to be treated and how you like to treat other people, it will make those choices a lot easier because you'll be okay with the consequences of whatever they are. For instance, I have difficulty, um, sort of, I have difficulty lying, you know, and and a lot of times, you know, in the course of a job, no, someone's not asking you to out and out lie, but you know there are moments where if if you are if if i was in a in a production situation with certain kinds of people they would sort of expect me to omit things or not really describe what was really going to happen I've been or in that you know more than let's once. go to the yep. location but let's not really tell them what we're mm-hmm. doing and i can't do that i don't think it's right and i can't live with myself with with that. It's just it's just a burden and I realize it's a burden I don't want to bear. So the only way I don't have to I can't can sur- cannot bear that burden is if I take myself out of the equation in situations where I'm going to be required to do that. Okay. So in certain cases I would not do projects or I would seriously think about turn I've turned down work. It's like I turned down work because I'm afraid that if I do that I'm gonna be asked to do this, that, and the other, and I'm gonna have a trouble with that. So I'm okay not doing the job, because I don't want to be put in a position to have to do things that go against the grain of like how I like to operate in the world, how I like to treat people, and how I like to be. So it, that made it a lot easier for me to say no to things. Some people never say no to anything, and that's okay this. for them. Yeah, it's not okay for me.
0: Well, you said yes to plenty, and you got plenty done. What I'm wondering is with your tenure, because you know you've you've been a producer, you've been all sorts of things within the industry, you've been a teacher and an innovator at the American Film Institute. You've done a bunch, um, and I by the way, I, I noticed when you were at AFI, you. You addressed that with the same passion that you yeah. did when you were producing a movie. That's right. You cared about teaching these kids. You cared about the experience they were having, and you cared about their storytelling, as though honestly they were working on a studio picture.
1: Yeah, and that's what, which is what I—that was a choice I made because that's what I, how I wanted to do it. And, and so, also, I felt like I was making those movies with them.
0: Well, you were. I saw you.
1: 185 of them.
0: People who, okay, people who are making movies always grab their hair. You grabbed your hair a lot yeah. in front of me. <laughs> okay, just so you know, it's a tick, it's a tell. So. When you add all of this up so you have your IMDb page, you have, you know, you have yeah. your resume and yeah. you have these jobs you've done. Do you feel satisfied by it? Do you feel proud of it? Do you feel like you added something to the world? What does it feel like to have accomplished all of these things even if they weren't something, you know, like you said right. you did whatever came next? Right. Even if they weren't like this giant consuming goal. What does it feel like to own that? Body of work, not well, you're,
1: resume. You're a. You're making a giant critical assumption right now. Go on. That I do own it.
0: Oh, do you own it?
1: I'm in the birth canals of trying to own it because I'm not doing that stuff anymore. I'm not doing that work anymore. So what's hard for me right now is I'm doing something else that is informed by all that work and that experience. What is that? Well, I'm. Basically, I mean, I'm navigating back and forth between L.A. and where my mother lives, and she's 90, and she uh, needs a lot of care and feeding and, and help. I mean, she lives in an assisted living facility, but, you know, I still spend a huge amount of time mm. helping her and dealing with her care and everything. And and it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, it, it happened, again, it was one of these things that kind of happened by accident. She had an accident. I was not. I was unemployed. I was able to be with her during these months of, like, you know, rehab and everything she had to go through. And then I kind of fell into this rhythm of, like, being there for her. So it's been a while, a few years, and I'm now in a place where I need to make some choices about what it, how I want to spend my time. And I'm struggling with it because I'm trying to figure out, well, people say, oh, I set up a consulting business. I kind of tried to do that, and I went, you know... I don't know. I don't I feel like what I, I'm I'm I need to, to do some creative work for myself, which scares the shit out of me. Because I've always done it for other people. I mean, but it was telling and about a year ago I got a call from somebody I had gone to film school with who I hadn't heard from in a thousand years. I hadn't heard from him in thirty years. And I was like, of course my mind immediately goes to Oh, what is he wants something, what is it? So <laughs> we had this conversation is like, well, through without going through the whole long explanation of how he got to this conclusion. I mean, he's somebody who had had some success as a writer, etc. And he was at a point in his life and career where he decided that he wanted to... uh, He thought I would be the right person to partner with him to produce his movies, and maybe I wanted to direct one I obviously might have thought about it, and that I should jump on board. And I'm listening to this going... Well, first of all, I think he's delusional because you don't suddenly do that when you're in your sixties. Out of the blue. I mean, I got thirty year old former students who are the ones that are doing that now. So it's like starting it's like I wouldn't no more think of starting out in the entertainment business now. I'd have to have my head examined.
0: You know that Emily Post didn't write the book of etiquette until she was in her fifties, right?
1: But what was she doing before that?
0: I think she was a prostitute.
1: Well, so she I'm wasn't kidding.
0: She wasn't but you know what I mean? she was she was a society lady, I think. That's but.
1: possible, but my point is the book comes out of her experience living her life doing something else. Sure. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is like I've had this varied experience. My trajectory has not been direct, it's been all over the place. Zigs and zags. Do you but I have acquired all this knowledge and people, I collect people, I don't ever let go of people. <laughs> I have a lot of like, you know, stu- former students that I don't let like go of. And so I'm trying to like figure out what does all that give me in terms of giving something back or creating some way of, of, of not feeling like I'm a useless you know, has-been. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't feel like a useless has-been. It's just I'm, there's a side of me that, yeah, I am driven and I, I, I am ambitious still. Um, but it what does that goes look, away. But what does that look like? I don't, yeah, it doesn't go away, but how do you tame it so that it doesn't end up for destroying me, you in a way? For you? me,
0: it's about redefining it so that it is not where your meaning comes That's from. That's
1: right. It's absolutely it's right. It's not
0: where your meaning comes from. Right. It has to do with um, maybe some purpose. Yeah. You can say it's part of your purpose, yeah. but it is not the meaning of right. your life. And when I realized that a few years ago, honestly, it was terrifying. Because I had been making movies since I was 12 and knew that that's what I wanted to do. Right. And never aimed anywhere else, by the way. My yeah, B career what's... was going to be designing roller coasters for amusement parks. Okay. Another easy field to get into because there that's are three right. people who do it. Yeah. But but I think that that transition is really interesting. And you're telling me that you're in that transition I now. I think so.
1: I mean, I think part of it is, you know, culturally it's an age-related transition. I mean, you know, the business does not... Uh, when you get to be a certain age is like you're you kind of age out in a way uh, i i mean i say that to people like oh no 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 i'm not well it's not because i have a diminished capacity it's just i'm being re- realistic and practical i look around me and it's like yes there's 40 and 50 year olds that are that's it's, it's 30 40 50 that's that's the sort of sweet spot to me in a way and then at a, and so you can't like rant and rail and deny it and lie to people about your i mean, it's stupid it's like <laughs> it is what it is you know like it's okay now you have to just take all that and go someplace else with it so that's what i'm trying to, to figure out one thing that my mother has taught me in the time that i spent a lot of time with her and a lot of time in this assist i mean a lot of time around 80 and 90 year olds and they're all quite amazing people because if they're still alive and kicking and you can have an intelligent conversation with them Mm -hmm. and they're in their 90s that that's somebody to learn from right right and i think Mm -hmm. the thing she she struggles with the most is and she we've talked about this she said because she was always very active you know she had part-time jobs and she you know she taught french and she played music and you know she was always really active and with many interests and she now has trouble seeing i mean this her so her some of her capacities are diminished and the thing she's struggling with the hardest she says i feel like i'm not i can't i don't have any purpose i'm not helping anybody i'm not doing anything for anyone and i have no purpose and i listened to her she said this to me about a year ago and i thought well that's something for me to listen to because that's that's the object is like Find a purpose, whatever it is, and out of that will come meaning and value and self-worth and all that stuff. Purpose comes
0: first, and we don't control the meaning. No. I think that I have made the mistake of thinking I control what something was going to mean. Mm -hmm. You know, if I do this, then I am successful. And what successful means is, honestly, it was a deep sense of validity or you know, acceptance for me.
1: Well, I guess going back to this idea that I don't plan and I just kind of do what's in front of me, it's like I've I've never, I've never gone after meaning. It just comes out of what I do.
0: You've always struck me as an intensely purposeful person.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, oh, I think I'll do that because, you know, I would identify a role that I could create. I mean, many, I mean, one job after another. It's the same thing at AFI. my story is i go some i go to an institution or a place or around people or a movie or whatever and i look around and i identify okay well this this and this should be happening and i can do that i'll figure that out i'll fulfill that i'll fill that void and i create like a reality for myself out of what i know how to do and, and then, when that's been satisfied, or the thing is cruising along, it's like, it does not as interesting to me anymore. It's time to move on. That's the other thing. Let me ask
0: you this. this which is, which something... is
1: what I loved about movies, too, by the way. Mm-hmm. Because making movies, to me, the process was always what was the most valuable to me. Because... Uh, it was like creating an instant family. I, you know, I that's what I've been seeking. I mean, I have no siblings, and so and my family's all in Montreal. I grew up in California, so people with big families when they you know, talk about their fifty people for Thanksgiving, I'm like, wow, you're not what's that like? You're
0: not as bratty as most one single wow. kids
1: because my parents were like very conscious of making sure I wasn't turned out. To my be mom a was brat, a, was know? an only
0: child. <laughs> she was a so, real brat.
1: So. Um, you know so I, I the, it, making a movie to me was like an instant family I would be around a group of people that I put together I would pick like minded um, people they created in the, family and we made something remember together remember how
0: I mentioned how it felt in the production office on Night of yeah. the Roxbury that's kind of what I was talking about yeah. it was a wonderful group of people and that's that what
1: I like doing is like creating and every movie was different so certain people weren't right for certain certain. so it's like that's, that's what I liked to do I did the same thing at AFI I brought people together to do something that nobody had actually said to me needed to be done. But I recognized that X needed to be done, and I could figure it out and I would do it. You know And I would do it with people that I you know, would gather around me and and, and, then, and the movies had a beginning, a middle and an end, which is also great because a when everything was done, we were done. It's also know? a
0: family that breaks up. That's predictably, right. which uh, at on, first yeah. really bothered me. By the yeah. way, I hated that when I was on crew, like when yeah. I was doing props or sound or something, and um, and it ended, it made me sad.
1: Yeah, well, that's but I had awesome. a core
0: group of friends that didn't change, so that right. sort of uh, well, that's why here's something I, to sort I really of hang want. on
1: to people too.
0: Here's so. what I really want to ask you because it's something I've had a hard time with, and maybe maybe it's something you're dealing with or have dealt with, and could illuminate. Where do you put what? Where do you put the things that you didn't? Get to do where do you put your disappointments how do you work with them are they done are they over or are they something you carry
1: well I think there's something I carry but I don't let them define me you know I I, I think it's it's unrealistic uh, to say that's that. why
0: it hurts so bad Is I think that I've let some of them define me
1: yeah I mean I don't I don't I don't, I don't think I look around and I, you know, I'm still really involved in the Directors Guild, and I have, you know, I have a lot of friends who are who have had much bigger careers than we all started out at the same time. They've had much bigger careers in the sense of oh, bigger, yeah. I have friends who're doing lots big and stuff. lots of yeah. money, you know, Academy Awards stuff like that, and that didn't happen for me, but that's okay, you know. It's like I, I'm doing, I, I did other, th- I made other choices, so it's like those other choices sort of led me to other things. So I I don't um I I have to acknowledge that that didn't happen for me. That's okay. It just didn't happen for me. I also me.
0: never saw those things as your goals ever. No, honestly. but they
1: aren't. Because if I had wanted to make a lot of money, I would have made a lot more money. That was not an yeah. objective. Yeah. My objective to do was to do some interesting work with some interesting people. Oh
0: yeah, no, and people. If you could read the script that she met me over, that she read and said, "Hey, I want to meet this kid." Trust me, she wasn't going for an Academy Award. She was a very no, but odd also, film. I
1: recognized something in that script because I went. It's it was pure. It was pure. It was a purely creative piece of work. It's it was like yeah. I saw there was a definite. There was a voice there. There was somebody who had something to say. Who was
0: I was using traded. my culture of that's the right. Southern culture was all but over But then also it. I
1: remember when we talked, it was like that's where the beggar's waltz came out of. Yep. We talked about it and I my kept favorite asking script. you questions. Still isn't
0: made, but it is my favorite script. And it's ri- it got written because I so looked up to you and oh. you said, what else do you have? That was code for, do you have anything that's not expensive and weird? <laughs> but I didn't know it at the time. And you said, what else do you have? And so I went to write down a series of treatments of little nuggets that I right. had. And you said when you read the thing, it was at the time it was called Bourgeois Serenade right. because I was a big Louis Bunuel fan and uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie was a th- right. big thing for me. And I called it Bourgeois Serenade. And you looked at it and in your head you thought, I'll work on him in that title later. But because it's so pretentious I almost can't say it <laughs> for fear that someone will kill me. But you, um, you looked and you said, when you write this one, I want to see it. And to this date, that is... Now it is the my second favorite script I've ever written. It's something that I still hold so dear. Like I said, I haven't let go of that. Either.
1: Well, because it but. speaks to it, it. It's like inside baseball, you know. It's like you and I remember this conversation we had. I asked you a couple of questions because I I don't I'm sort of fascinated by the South, and I don't know why I haven't spent I haven't spent any time there. Maybe it's because it's kind of like a culture within a culture, and because I'm French Canadian. That's a culture within a culture, and even though I grew up in the U.S., you know, we speak French at home. You know, it's a culture it. a,
0: within a culture that is proud of itself and stubbornly refuses to change, well,
1: which is yeah. very interesting. And I think that that may be why, because I think that there's some analogy with this sure, place sure, that I that that. come from, and what, and so it's always been interesting to me. Plus, the whole idea of like the Southern Belle—what does that mean? And I remember a con- we had a conversation about it. And I said, "What is that? What is that?" And you told me you you described that the southern woman, frail, whatever, is like a total act. Mm -hmm. And you talked more about it, and I went, well, that's what you should be writing about because (laughs) you're writing about it from the inside of your own experience in an articulate way that's different and that's fresh because you're a man, you know? It's different.
0: Usually. Um, I... (laughs) um, No, I I sort of cherish the things that we don't put down. I cherish the, the things... I'm learning right now, Marie, to try not to feel remorse around the things that have not happened. That's right. I do not know what's coming next, and neither do you. No. Um, Like I said, I think there is great value in in realizing that Emily Post did not become Emily Post until she was in her 50s. She didn't see that coming, most likely. We don't. I didn't see a career that would sustain, uh, like, the clearance work that I started because of that call from you. I didn't see that coming. I didn't know what the job was when you called me. (laughs) You know, and because apparently you had a lot of fun in the 70s, you you hired me anyway. Um, (laughs) um, No, it was an act of kindness that paid off for me hugely. Um, We don't know what's coming yet, but I think that it can stop us in our tracks if we can't embrace... Are failures as not that important, or not failures, they aren't even failures. I call it just not getting what you wanted.
1: I don't, but I, you know, I think very few, I mean, I'm always uh, in, impressed when I read somebody's bio or an obituary or something where it feels like somebody went on a straight path from like, I always wanted to do this, blah, blah, blah. I went to college, I went to grad school, I got my PhD. Blah, I thought blah, blah, that's and what then, was going to happen. You know, and I'm like, I'm reading that, and I read these things and I'm going, wow. I wonder what that feels like. Yeah,
0: I've never had that no experience. Never, <laughs> never, it's like You know, I'll never. go
1: off in one tangent. It's like, oh, that doesn't work. I'll do this for a while. You know, I was like, go over here. It's like, well, you know, it, that's. And I'll tell you that at that that actually got me a job. When I what got you a job? This this this. uh What got me a job? Well, I mean, I'll tell you, and then you'll understand what I'm, what my point is. When I. Uh, was called about my. It was whether if I was available to work on a Michael Mann film. I went, yes, yeah, sure. And then of course I was terrified because I'd heard all the stories. And I went, oh my god, what's it going to be like, you know? And I called friends who'd worked with him, and they said, no, nah, you'll be okay. So, I I went and met you know the first tier of people. And then a month went by, and I still hadn't heard. So I just assumed they hired somebody else. But they hadn't hired because they kept interviewing people. And then I got another call saying, okay, can you, you can you meet Michael Mann? I went, yeah, absolutely. And I went to meet him, and they prepped me, and it was like I said, hey, I'm just gonna go talk to Michael Mann. You know, I'm gonna talk to him about movies, and you know, I either get the job or I won't. They've been interviewing people for two months. You know? <laughs> I felt like I had nothing to lose, so I went and went, met him in his office. The two people that you know I would eventually, ultimately answer to sat on either side of me like a throne. And he sat across his desk, and they hand, you know, he had my resume, which he may have read ahead of time. I don't know, but he, he was the one who called the shots about who he wanted to meet, so he must have read it. And he's looking at my resume, and he looks at me, and he he says, "You have a very interesting resume because it looks like you worked on a bunch of different kinds of things that might have been of interest to you." And I said, "That's exactly right, <laughs> and that's why I got the job." That's amazing because he didn't look in he didn't look at this piece of paper and see a predictable person. Because it was like the movies are kind of all over the place. And they're like all very different. And I think that he responded to that. And I decided that I may never get this job. And I may never have an opportunity to talk to Michael Mann about movies. And I talked to him about Thief, which was his first film. Because I love that I used film. to listen
0: to the Tangerine Dream score Ugh, in my Firebird film, in North Carolina. Because
1: I love yeah. procedurals and it was like, it was really, so We I asked him questions about it. We talked about movies and I talked about some of his other films. I told him why I liked his films. And then, you know, I got up to leave the room, walked down the hall and they said, don't go anywhere. And he hired me on the spot, basically. And I think partially it was because of recognizing that, you know, maybe this person, we'd take a chance on her because... She looks unpredictable.
0: I want to say something that I've noticed throughout this conversation, Marie, and thank you so much for having it with me, is that one of the things I'm admiring about your story so much is, though you've explained to me that you didn't have a rigid goal in mind and that you sort of did what came next, one of the things you didn't do was become someone you didn't want to be.
1: No. That's
0: right. How satisfying is that?
1: That's um, I probably what I feel best about. I sort of stayed true to, you know, and that's, that's, that's from my family, my parents, how I was raised, what I was raised to think about, what I was raised, to, how I was raised to behave, what holds value, and that, those things are important to me. And I guess that's, that's why when I say to the students, you know, think about who you are and how you want to be in the world. Because I know that that, whether I was conscious of it all the time, um, it, it's what drove my choices. Because that was it was clear to me what that was, what those things were, and so I, I feel like you know I didn't I didn't sort of flash and thrail you know flash you know thrash around because I had this sort of grounded uh, place that I could always come back to. And that's what drove my choices and my decisions, because it sort of kept me going. And, 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 and I have to trust that now, I probably have more doubt now than I had 20 years ago, but that's a function of, you know, age as well. It's like, but I have to remind myself, it's like, well, look, look at everything you've done, and you've come this far. It's like, I don't know where, what's next, and I sort of fell into what I'm doing now, kind of by accident, kind of by duty, kind of like circumstance, But it's teaching me something, too. I don't know where it's taking me, but it's taking me someplace that I had no idea I would ever be.
0: Marie Canton, thank you so much for this conversation. I value you enormously.
1: Thank you, Jay Floyd. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Grinning Idiot Podcast. If you want to follow us to make sure you don't miss anything, we're uh, subscribable on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. You can find us in any of these places or on SoundCloud where we're natively hosted. And subscribe there and you won't miss a week's worth of conversations. Um, If you want to send me an email for any old reason, knowing, of course, that I might end up using it on the air... Is this air? I don't know. Anyway, I might use it on the podcast. Um, My email address is howdy at grinningidiot.com. That's H-O-W-D-Y at grinningidiot.com. I hope you guys are having a great week. And I look forward to uh, being in your ears again soon, if you don't mind. Consensually, of course.